Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. And today's episode is focusing (laughs) on mental health. And we are in, I think I've lost track of what month we're in. Seven? Um, I think we're in seven. Seven. And when we started this, so our podcast launched in June, uh, but we started recording in May. So in May, when we started doing our recordings, you know, we were a month and a half in um, and it was already feeling a bit overwhelming. And now uh, it just continues to feel (laughs) pretty draining. (laughs) Stay at home orders. We're seeing, uh, I mean, I live in Cuyahoga County and we're having conversations that we might move into the purple range the highest level of risk and spread with the pandemic. Uh, And it's a lot. We're, you know, seen and and known people who have experienced COVID and the health implications. And this is, this is a lot for everyone. And so, you know, we didn't, didn't expect to be still doing the podcast in month seven, but I will say I can really appreciate that this episode is about mental health in month seven. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed for myself, right. That I did definitely feel suddenly like, uh, is this ever going to (laughs) stop? Is this just the treadmill of pandemic? (laughs) Yeah. I recently read, uh, an article. It was an article about a Twitter thread actually from professor Ahmed, um, who's at the university of Toronto and she does, I believe it's ethnographic work in sustained crisis locations. Uh, and so in that Twitter, Twitter thread um, and in the articles that kind of relate to it, she talks about kind of that six month wall and that, that feeling of being in a sustained crisis for that long um, and the impact that that has on all of us. I think, it, and it was really powerful to for me to read that so many people are, are experiencing the not only the economic implications of the crisis, the political implications of the crisis, but also kind of the psychological and mental health implications of the sustained um, crisis of COVID. Yeah, and I think one of the unique things about the current public health crisis that we're going through is that it's not it's not the only one, right? <laughs> we yeah. have multiple crises occurring at one uh, at one time that's putting a lot of pressure on folks. We're a week, we're less than a week from the general election, right? We've got this economic impact that's happened because of the pandemic that we see is is potentially quite protracted. Uh, we see that the increased death toll is is really starting to be quite alarming um, and doesn't look like it's going to slow uh, at any point. And, um, you know, how all of these things kind of culminate and come together to have a mental health impact that, that perhaps, right, we weren't quite uh, uh, in a place to, to deal with. Right. And I, I want to just point out to our listeners, too, that we're not mental health 
experts. And our conversation today is really about organizational responses uh, to kind of these mental health impacts from COVID. Uh, and so one of the things that I think is particularly important to this conversation is also that in this space, that for organizations, especially community-based organizations providing community-based mental health services, that there are a lot of demands and competing demands on how they are responding from different county level public health requirements to changes in billing and funding. And I think all of those things are also really particularly important to how we're talking about mental health and uh, COVID uh, as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think that uh, was really uh, an interesting uh, aha moment for me uh, during our talk with our guest today was that, and I guess I just never put the things together, that these providers face pressures, not just from increased demands for services uh, during the pandemic, which they definitely do. We, we know that that's clear now. Um, but there's also external demands, whether these are economic in nature or political in nature, right? So um, where they get their funding from matters. And if funding comes from uh, sources uh, like, frankly, government provided healthcare for for low income individuals, and that's uh, on on a precipice of disappearing. That might hinder their ability to provide services to individuals who so desperately need it. Yeah, and I think that that just really kind of captures what we mean when we talk about governing during a pandemic, right? That you know, mental health services are essential and important and particularly maybe important in this moment in time, but that the organizations that are providing these services, the individuals that are providing these services are also part of all of these structures and are shaped by all of these um, structures, whether it's through funding or through guidelines on what they can and cannot do. And that it's so important for us to be paying attention in the ways that we can to uh, what these organizations can uh, provide and and kind of the amazing services that they're providing. Absolutely. I think we're really, really lucky uh, to have our guest with us today, Vicki Clark. All right. Today we have with us Vicki Clark. Uh, she is the president and CEO of Ravenwood Health, a private nonprofit trauma-informed agency that strives to provide a safe and compassionate community that supports and respects the unique journey of each person's path to healing, creating hope for all of those who walk through their doors. She also has a bachelor's and a master's from Kent State, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that given that we're housed at Kent State. But with that, I just I want to welcome you, uh, Vicki, to our podcast. Thank Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. So now, Vicki, could you just briefly talk to us a little bit about uh, about yourself and your role at Ravenwood Health and kind of what drew you to this work? Well, when I was at Kent, I worked at Town Hall, too, and I started to take a variety of classes and did not know which way I was going. I've always enjoyed interacting with people and hearing their stories in particular. 
So uh, I got to about my junior year, and that was at a time when you could spend a little time trying to figure out what you wanted to be, uh, and look back, and I'd taken just about every psychology course that was available, and realized uh, between my experiences at Town Hall and some other things I'd done volunteer-wise, and looking at what clearly my interests were, that this was where I wanted to go. After I graduated, I think I, uh, with my bachelor's in psychology, I, I looked around, I worked at a detention facility for youth and loved it and realized I really wanted to be in the counseling field. And I have never regretted that for a day. I feel like I'm somebody who's blessed, who's been able to live out their passion. And that's, that's really what this work has been for me. I landed at Ravenwood in 1986 as the director of the Sex Abuse Treatment Program. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor with supervisory endorsement and helped develop that program and found I really, I love treatment. I love working individually, but I also love program development. And over a course of a few years, took on quite a few other programs and became the chief operating officer in 1989. I held that position till 2013, and our executive director uh, had resigned, he retired actually, and had the opportunity to interview for the CEO position and was thrilled to get that and have just loved every piece of this journey. So that's a little about me and my role. Fantastic. So I also have an undergraduate degree in psychology and started down the trajectory of direct service and direct care. And I learned that that was not my area and uh, (laughs) kind of took a slightly different path. You know, I feel like there's definitely that there's definitely Mm -hmm. that 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 story that I hear quite often when I'm talking with people uh, that are in this profession. So I want to ask you a little bit more about what Ravenwood Health does. Um, I know a little bit about the mission of the organization, but what other types of services do you provide and all of that? Ravenwood Health is behavioral health. We provide drug and alcohol and mental health services both. We are uh, a large agency in a small community that really is provides a whole comprehensive approach. What I found is that this is not a one-size-fits-all field and you need to Uh, Really look at the individual and the family and the person you're working with and decide what is it they need. So in that vein, we treat all ages, pretty much everything in the the DSM, which is our diagnostic manual, everything from 24-7 emergency services, 365 days a year. We we can work with people who really are in crisis all the way up to we have a residential program for youth and also one for adults. We psychiatry, community outreach, home-based counseling, um, partial hospitalization. I mean, we do pretty much the gamut of, of services. We're actually relatively small uh, compared to a lot of big agencies, but we've really worked to expand that that with the service. Now, just from your perspective, what role does Ravenwood Health play in the Northeast Ohio community? And I guess I'm kind of interested, too, about the the origin of the organization, given that, I mean, it's been around for so many years. And and mental health is kind of now, I think, becoming seen as an acceptable topic to talk talk about and tackle. But back then, I mean, it was maybe a little taboo. Right. It was very, it's very exciting where it's coming. We still have a long way to go, but I'm really excited that people are openly talking about it. Even government officials at very high levels at this point are recognizing how important it is to address our mental health. We started in uh, 1966 as part of the Community Mental Health Act. Uh, 
it was a small organization in a little house, but it was a start and they provided some counseling and psychiatry services and gradually expanded over the years, really took off in 1980s with the deinstitutionalization, really that whole movement to let's get people out of lifelong stays in psychiatric institutes and bring them into the community. That was really uh, taking off when I first came to Ravenwood. Uh, and it was an exciting thing to see people who had spent 5, 10, 20 years literally in a psychiatric facility transition to the community and be able to live independently. We did lots of community supports and it moved. So that was a, a, a period of growth. And then just over probably the last 20 years, we've really expanded more and more as we see the more you can provide the service early and in the, the natural environment of the person, the, the much more impactful it is. Did I answer your question? I Absolutely. Of- That's really interesting. I, I mean, it, I had obviously knew about uh, the deinstitutionalization. It didn't occur to me how much that would have uh, impacted uh, community-based centers, because I guess I didn't think that there, that there would have been many at that time. Um, yeah. Was a lot of it was a lot of individuals uh, that we brought out of the hospitals, and now most psychiatric stays are, are relatively short and really more about stabilization, so that you can come back into the community environment. And it might be, for example, we have an adult residential facility where people can go for a short crisis stay or even stay a little longer. And we also have homes in the community where it's independent living, but we have case managers and employment folks and just different people in their homes helping them manage uh, that more independent life. So in your mission statement, you say that you're a trauma-informed agency. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be trauma-informed and how that approach has informed your COVID response, given that we're doing this interview yeah, in the midst yeah. of a pandemic um, and, and, and many, in some ways, a, a, you know, a reckoning around racial justice mm-hmm. as well, which I also think is, has uh, had some mental health implications. Right. Yes, definitely. Trauma-informed is really uh, almost a life approach. It is uh it, it permeates everything we do at Ravenwood. It's not just what happens in the treatment uh, setting when you're in a session, but it really is when you walk into or you call uh, that you get a warm response, something that you're, it's not called, we're not perfect at this. We're really working at it. You know, it's not something that just happens. Um, when you walk into the agency, is it warm and welcoming? Are everybody you come in contact, you feel safe. That's a big piece of it. Do you feel safe coming here? Does this feel like a place you can uh, really open up and be vulnerable and be safe? So we, we really look at everything we do from that first phone call to walking into the agency to walking down our halls. Uh, do you go into a therapist's office? It feels like I can sit here and versus uh, relax versus, you know, something that's very sterile or or. Um, do we have pictures on the wall that are offensive? So it's it's that whole thing. And in COVID, you had asked that second piece to it. Where I've seen the drama-informed really come into play is, for example, we have a lot of group programming, and we couldn't do that, especially early on, and we're all still learning how to do Zoom groups and things like that. We were able to turn things around and deliver services mostly one-on-one to clients. For example, we instead of somebody coming into a group, we would take out maybe um, 
art therapy supplies so that they could at their home do some things. We were taking food out to people quite a bit. Some of our, our clients to be able to do even an individual session did not have any kind of phone, smartphone or tablet or anything to do it on. So we redeployed our drivers rather than bringing clients into we, they took out those pieces of equipment, would pick them up, sanitize, take them to the next one so that everybody could be involved. So those are well, some examples. That's that's really uh, clever and, and a lot of innovative approaches to how do you still do this work, right? Even though yeah. there are maybe some things that prevent you. So now one of the things I was curious to ask you was uh, related to the recent AMA press release that I was reading. And they were talking about in their statement, the rising number of opioid related mortality uh, in, in more than 40 states, right? And I know Ohio's definitely had a problem with this in the past. And that, in addition to that, there's increasing concerns for those with mental illness and substance abuse uh, disorder. Can you talk to us about how the pandemics made your work and the work of Ravenwood more urgent during this time? Yeah. You know, at first, that first couple months, we actually saw a decrease in requests for services and weren't seeing a lot of impact. Boy, that's changed. We are back to more than pre-pandemic levels of need for help and, and really concerns. As far as the the opiate deaths, yes, they they are on the rise. But what we're seeing is it's more um, amphetamines. uh, Stimulants are really coming into play now in the fentanyl. So it's less the the straight opioid like we, well, fentanyl is, but that's where we're seeing the deaths come from and the really scary kind of behaviors. And people um, are really struggling because some of their supports weren't there, for example, AA or NA. Um, or they were virtual, a lot of them went virtual, and and not having that face-to-face contact. And in fact, I will say in our drug and alcohol program, those are the folks that probably struggled the most without having group face-to-face. And they were the first ones that we went back to an in-person group situation, especially the adults. So that's a little bit of the impact there. On the other side, the mental health side, it was really our severely and persistently mentally ill folks that we worried about and who were having the most difficult time. A lot of them are already isolated. Um, some don't have a lot of family supports. And so we we tried and we couldn't do group uh, programming with them. So those are the folks that we really were, were taking out food. We were taking out puzzles and games and, and doing a lot of phone calls with. We got innovative there too, where you sit outside at a picnic table so that you could have some interaction. Uh, we were doing smaller, you know, maybe two or three people in groups where we would do some socialization. So that's where we saw the most difficulty. So you've, you've talked a little bit about the programs and services and the need to, I mean, in many ways, constantly be changing from the very beginning of the pandemic to what you're doing now. And some of that is shaped by the needs of your clients um, and the people that you're working with. And some of it's also shaped by constantly changing executive orders and county rules. So my my question is a little bit around like how, what is your relationship at Ravenwood and maybe relationship isn't the exact word I'm looking for, but what is your connection to kind of county government, public health, and, and how are you navigating that during the pandemic? 
Well, I spend a lot of time on webinars, as does other people on our senior leadership team. I We get newsletters from our county health department. We make calls there. Uh, we are in touch with a state like trade associations that stay really on top of those kinds of things. I'm on a board of one of our trade associations at the state. And, you know, it's it's multiple, multiple webinars and phone calls a week as because it does change so quickly. And then the next piece is you have to get the leadership team together and then we have to implement the new changes. And luckily, we have a very strong leadership team. And even before this, the changes going on in behavioral health were pretty big. They, they completely overhauled the whole system at the state like two years ago, and we just implemented that. Some of the, the Medicaid uh, things have changed. And so we've had a focus already on being a strong and agile. That is right in some of our like purpose statements. We have to be agile and ready to adapt quickly. So luckily, we'd already built our team around that, and we're able to, to adapt to this. I have a quick follow-up and, and just forgive me if it's, you know, not, <laughs> if it's out of line or you can't answer it easily. But I mean, I think that that's, that's to me so powerful, right? You're a mental health organization. You're there to do trauma-informed care with a community and in many ways is vulnerable, right? I, I mean, I, and you're constantly facing kind of all these external requirements and changes, whether that's from the county, from the state, or for the federal government. So that you're in this space um, that you're constantly being adaptive to provide the best quality care mm-hmm. um, while also having these other pressures. I don't know if that's a question, but just a comment on the work <laughs> that, that organizations are doing pre-COVID, but also during COVID, I think is so important to pay attention to that, that you're, you have to be agile and nimble and innovative and constantly doing it with an eye toward uh, care. Yes. Right. <laughs> so I, I have a question and again, if it's follow-up. I, I, so I can understand if, uh, if it's something that you're not comfortable with right now, but so you're navigating this space where you're held accountable, as Ashley said, to these layers of government, but you're also a private organiz- nonprofit organization. Right. I, I assume that a lot of people pay for services with healthcare coverage that they have, right. but, but certainly all of your resources don't come from that. So where does funding come for some of the services? And and do you turn people away if they can't pay or do you figure out other mechanisms for funding? That's a really good question. Um, we do bill pretty much every insurance. We deal, bill Medicaid, Medicare. The clients do pay certain portions and it all depends on what kind of coverage. But we really have a strong commitment to mental health in Geauga County. We have two levies and our mental health and recovery board is awesome. And they, so we have a sliding fee scale for those folks that can't afford to pay. So we don't turn people away that are Geauga County residents in particular ever because of not being able to pay. We have that backup to us, which is the board. Um, out of county residents, it's 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 trickier if you're not from Geauga County because that sliding fee doesn't cover you. But we do our best to try to to manage that. I'll tell you, Medicaid expansion um, happened a few years ago. It, it's always at risk that they'll take that back. That was huge for adults with addiction in particular. We saw really a lot of folks get coverage through that, and it, and it mattered for treatment. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously you think of it for mattering for uh, health purposes when you think of going to see the doctor, but you forget that there are mental health services that come along with that too. So that's really important. Thank you. Yeah. So what motivates you to stay in this type of work? I mean, I have to imagine, uh, I mean, I have a lot of social worker friends and they, uh, they struggle sometimes themselves. (laughs) I have to imagine when you're in a position where that is your job is helping people deal with the, the weight of the world that they're carrying around, that has to feel kind of compounding to you. So how do you kind of navigate and stay motivated in that space? Well, it, it's at bottom line and you do feel like you make a difference. And I, I do feel passionate about the work we do here in that I see people striving every day to do the very best to help folks out. And you see the progress that people make and it's impressive. I ran into an individual a while back who was working at a retail place um, and I'd gone to make a purchase for Ravenwood and they made a point to meet with me because they were, I don't know, mid late twenties and in their early adulthood had become suicidal and somebody, their friend got them in touch with our helpline and they got help and they are now, you know, have a great job. They had a, a, a partner in life and they had their own place to live. And they just wanted to tell me that, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, that's what keeps you going when you hear that kind of thing. And it, it is hard. There are days what, what is stressful to me is when outside entities who don't know much about you come in to attack or, you know, that, that I find stressful. Um, or don't really understand mental health and addiction and all that we do here. Um, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, as I said, while, while I think people are more comfortable talking about it now, not everyone is. And <laughs> I, I'm yeah. sure that there is still a lot of stigma wrapped up in that. I want to just ask, you know, kind of move in toward the end of our interview. You know, this podcast series in particular is about governing during pandemic, right? It's about how we're serving the public um, and how different entities are serving the public. And so, you know, do you have any final words of wisdom for us in terms of how we can individually or as organizations or as community collectives (laughs) can navigate the pandemic uh, in a healthy, safe way? Mm, I think, I I don't know that I have any great words of wisdom. I know for us at Ravenwood, what I found was most important was, and you hear this, this sounds just, is lots of communication, but a sense of really established a sense of we're in this together. I made a commitment early on not to lay anybody off if I could all help it at least through the summer. And we were able to stick with that. We still are not going to have to do that, but we were all like, really, I think that set a tone, like we're in this together. We're, I don't know, family, but you know, we're, we're, we're a team here. And um, I, I, I got a lot of feedback that that really helped in that then people were willing to do whatever job was assigned to them. They might not be doing what they normally did, but they had a job. They, you know, felt secure in that and were, we all pitched in. So to set that tone was really important. I think now what I worry about is it, it's getting, it's wearing on all of us. You hear that everywhere. And, and just, me, I'm trying to remember that's everybody at this agency is experiencing that and how can we support folks? So that's kind of what we're, we're, we're going through now and, and trying to talk to staff about what do you need to keep going? Cause I think we're going to be doing this for at least six more months, right. Or more. Yeah. And, and I, it, it 
feels from at least a lot of the things I've heard that some of the people that seem to be bearing at least the mental health burden um, disproportionately are women. Uh, whether that's right, that they're the shock absorbers at home or they're the shock absorbers at work, but that they feel um, a lot more pressure as a result of this. Especially, yeah, if they're in a caretaker, you know, kids or elderly parents or all that, that, that would be a lot to take on. It is a lot. And then still take care of yourself. And, you know, that taking care of yourself is more than just a bubble bath at night. It's really hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Vicki. It was such a pleasure having you on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And, and good luck with your work. I really appreciate that you're doing this. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org.